Welcome back to the Franchise Festival podcast, where we go in-depth with noteworthy video game series from the last 40 years. For Season 2, we're covering the evolution of Capcom's Resident Evil. You can find us online at FranchiseFestivalPodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Franchise underscore Fest. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or consider funding us at Patreon.com slash FranchiseFestival. Patrons will get shouted out on the show and get access to bonus episodes covering series spinoffs and other topics. The latest of these at the time of recording is on one of S.D. Perry's Resident Evil novels. If you have any questions or suggestions, be sure to reach out to us via email at franchisefestival at gmail.com. As ever, we are your hosts, Chris. Spencer. Hey, Malton. And we're joined today by a special guest. Hello, hello, hello. It's Kami Jace. Kami Jace, could you tell listeners a bit about yourself? Yes, of course. I am Kami Jace. I host the Weekly Cooldown podcast. It is a video game news podcast where we get to know the gaming news of the week and we get to know our guest. In full disclosure, I was on the Weekly Cooldown podcast uh, a little while back and enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, Kami Jace is a wonderful host, and they really get into the nitty-gritty of what's going on. Oh, thank you so much. That makes me feel great. Makes me feel real great. <laughs> <laughs> what's, your, uh, what's your history with Resident Evil? What drew you to Code Veronica as the Franchise Festival episode to guest on? So anyone who knows me really well knows two things about me. One, I love Resident, Resident Evil. And two, I really love the Dreamcast. And so, you know, the Code Veronica series or the Code Veronica game, excuse me, started on the Dreamcast. Um, And it's been one of my favorites ever since. Um, I love Claire Redfield. She is my favorite character um, in the Resident Evil series. She's she's the perfect protagonist. She really has the best growth of any Resident Evil character, in my opinion. Um, going from kind of like this civilian to like a total badass. Um, and the Code Veronica game, while it does absolutely have some flaws in it, um, is also like, I think the culmination of the Claire Redfield character. Um, and in a way, the culmination of the relationship between Chris and Wesker. Mm -hmm. Um, so, Code Veronica has always been one of my favorites. It's also like the longest of all the Resident Evils, I think. Um, it takes a while to get through if you're not like rushing through things. And also, it is the first one in North America, at least, to not have a difficulty mode. Um, you don't choose easy, normal, hard. It just kind of gives you the game. Um, oh, you're right. Which I, I didn't even notice that. Which I absolutely love because if you've played any other of the Resident Evil with tank controls on normal, it is, pl- you're playing on hard. They lie to you. <laughs> you are not <laughs> playing on normal. If you don't know how to conserve your ammo, you might as well just like figure out a way to lay down and die in that game. Mm-hmm. Well, like for me, it's just like I see a, a terrifying monster. It's just like, I don't want to run past it. I want it dead. Very yeah, it dead. must die. Yeah, I don't want to have this room, like, haunting me for the next three hallways because I know I have to come back. But I see people play it that way, and it scares me. That's how I play <laughs> I it. Know. I yeah, know. Yeah, you, you drop a little fear into your rearview mirror, so it gives you a spook the next time, too. It's like, yeah. uh... Also, Kami Jace, I could have sworn you were about to say rotisserie evil, and I was just like, I would try this, but it sounds mm. really terrible. 
Oh, I could go for some rotisserie evil. Love some barbecued evil. Resident Evil Code Veronica began development around August 1998 as something of an apology to Sega Saturn owners, who had been expecting Resident Evil 2 on that platform. Uh, Longtime listeners of the show will remember that there was a Resident Evil 1 port to the Sega Saturn, and there was a Resident Evil 2 port in development, but it ended up being cancelled because it was too demanding for the Saturn hardware. Because of this, Capcom started developing Code Veronica for Sega's next-generation Dreamcast console which was launched in Japan on November 27, 1998. The project was contracted to Nextech, a second-party Capcom affiliate that had been developing that Saturn port of Resident Evil 2 before it was abandoned. However, Capcom and another second-party studio, Flagship, were overseeing the project. So you had uh, Shinji Mikami from Capcom, of course the godfather of Resident Evil, who had uh, created the first game, he was the producer, It was directed by Hiroki Kato from Capcom. Kato had been working on the series since Resident Evil 1. He had designed, for example, the garden and underground areas of Resident Evil 1. And he was the primary point person supervising Nextech's port of RE1 to the Saturn. Finally, from Flagship, you had Noboru Sugimura, who uh, you may remember as the writer from Resident Evil 2 who had uh, fixed that project when it had run aground mid-development. He was, uh, of course, very into like lore and, and complex uh, world building and so forth. So he was kind of a natural guy to make sure that the next big Resident Evil fell in line with previous entries. It was intended to be the series' third chapter and move it past the Raccoon City incident, but it was never at any point planned to be Resident Evil 3, like officially numbered Resident Evil 3. Jill was originally planned to be the protagonist of Code Veronica, but because uh, Hideki Kamiya, a firebrand that he was, included an improvised line during the final cutscene of Resident Evil 2 suggesting that Claire, rather than Jill, would be following Chris to Europe, uh, Jill was sidelined from Code Veronica, since the overall thrust of Code Veronica was going to be heading to Umbrella in Europe. Uh, so that, that became Claire, and Jill, of course, got routed over into the project that became Resident Evil 3, as you can find out in uh, Season 2, Episode 3 of Franchise Festival. Can you imagine the power that would be Claire Redfield and Jill Valentine in Resident Evil Code Veronica? The power yeah, of those two. Oh my God. <laughs> Bring it to Charlie's Angels. Bring Ada, Jill, and... Um... And Claire. That would be good lord. That would be great. Maybe that's why they're never all on screen at the same time. Like because the they universe break the game take with actually being good. <laughs> Shinji Mikami assigned the project to be led by Kato since he appreciated Kato's interest in rules and logic. Uh, this all came from Kato's youth, where he designed his own tabletop games for friends. Uh, which, like, I can't not think of uh, what's his name, Ben Wyatt from Parks and Recreation. <laughs> So Kato, uh, from this uh, youthful pursuit, was particularly interested in booby traps that killed players Mm. and forced them to restart the game, uh, which is why he is somewhat infamous as the guy who designed the boulder traps from Resident Evil 1. I bet those tabletop games he made were a laugh riot. Yeah, I'll bet. 
it really feels like it kind of presages some of the mechanical problems with Code Veronica, doesn't it? Which one? That Kato was so into kind of tricking players Mm -hmm. and uh, like getting one over on them uh, with like a booby trap that they couldn't have seen coming and forcing them to come through the section a second time. Yeah, like the Super Meat Boy, or not Super Meat Boy, like the the Rage games where it's like you would absolutely not know this was here until you die from it, which is the worst mechanic in my opinion. And like Dark Souls has some of those kind of moments and they're always, they're kind of like, they're a good laugh. You know, um, they're, they're almost like uh, they're almost like a kind of physical comedy in the game world. The problem here is that uh, when you run into those sort of booby traps in Code Veronica, they tend to be more structural and force the player to go back oftentimes quite a ways to get back to the same point. So mm-hmm. um, they, they they don't quir- they don't quite work here as well, I think, as something that has the level of like minute to minute authorial control as a board game. Or something that is as fast-paced as, like, a Super Meat Boy or a Dark Souls. I was going to agree. Like, it's not made for that type of rage gaming. Like, Dark Souls, yeah. well, you should know, kind of going into it, kind of what to expect. I mean, I went into it. I, candidly, I have not completed a Dark Souls game because because of that rage mechanic, for me at least. Sure, sure. That kind of pushed me away. And that's not saying the games are bad by any stretch. Just wasn't quite... No, I love them, but they're not for everybody. Um... However, Resident Evil hasn't really had that kind of rage gaming where it's just like, oh, of course, I walk in there. It's just like Mario Maker where people make maps and you jump in. Oh, of course, there's hidden blocks where you're going to immediately die. So I take some issues with that comparison because the thing that makes Dark Souls so great in games like that that I held in highest, hold in high esteem is even though there may be a high degree of execution required to get through it, and that's where the difficulty comes from, everything in there kind of follows the rule set that it presents to the player. Like, if you move forward in the way that the game communicates to you is the effective way, anything that goes wrong, you can readily identify as your fault and come up with a plan on how to fix it or improve on that on the next iteration. And that iteration is also usually relatively quick. Dark Souls specifically gets worse about that the later the Mm. franchise goes as bonfires get further apart. The problems here, I won't get ahead of myself because I was going to talk about this in the gameplay section. The issues that pop up here blindside the player. There are are situations in here that can essentially softlock you from progressing. And there are situations that you cannot plan for or prepare for without having prior knowledge of the game. It's just either dumb luck or trial and error from redoing the section multiple times some Mm. of those sections are very lengthy and that whole mess is kind of antithetical to the point of the systems here right right and it drives me nuts that in uh (laughs) itchy tasty there was a interview section with kato where he says something along the lines, he seems to think that his system is perfect, and anyone that takes issue with that system is just not smart enough for his game. And that made me really mad. Yeah. My only quick note about Kato's game style design is that I have to wonder if it rubbed off on Shinji Mikami at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the evil within kind of takes this same Dark Souls kind of oh approach to gosh. traps. The first right. one, yes. Yes, where you're 
kind of like not expecting certain things to happen and then it happens and then you're dead it it it's it feels both like a another shinji mikami kato kind of game because the traps in that one like it it prepares you for it <laughs> later in the game because then you're like right. checking your corners and hiding more often um testing things to see if the the trap will hit you over here and stuff like that but then you end up dying anyway so it's fine yeah i think that's a really apt comparison because uh, mikami certainly had a lot of affection for kanto and his design style i mean he he had personally assigned him to code veronica for that reason so it wouldn't shock me if uh, that had rubbed off on him over time yep as far as timeline code veronica was developed simultaneously with resident evil 3 and Kamiya's original version of Resident Evil 4, which would go on, of course, to become Devil May Cry. But there was no crossover between the staff of Resident Evil 3 and Code Veronica. There was barely even any conversation between them. This would have an impact on the gameplay of Code Veronica, because certain improvements that players would have already encountered in Resident Evil 3 are not present in Code Veronica really yeah. conspicuously. Like uh, dodging or being able to manually ascend and descend stairs rather than stairs being a loading screen. There are stairs in Code Veronica that are not a loading screen. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. I, I sort of phrased that wrong. What I mean to say is you can ascend and descend stairs in real time in Resident Evil 3, but in Code Veronica, they are a toggle. You either ascend all the way upstairs or descend all the way downstairs. Got it. Good, uh, good point of clarification, though, uh, because that... That does have a pretty important uh, impact on the level design, since these areas are much more open and, and vertical than previous Resident Evil areas. Yeah. Speaking of that, Next Tech had produced a new game engine for this. This is the first new game engine in Resident Evil history. It abandons the pre-rendered backgrounds of the PlayStation 1 era in favor of polygonal environments that match the polygonal characters. This reduces the detail of any given background, uh, kind of like Dino Crisis had done to a much greater degree on the original PlayStation, but does allow the camera to move around as the player explores. The player doesn't control the camera. The camera does move still cinematically along with the action, but it creates a much more dynamic uh, sense of exploration in the areas. This was made possible by the support of another studio that I have never heard of in any other context, XAX Entertainment, uh, which was uh, lent its hand towards designing the backgrounds and designing the, uh, designing the locations. Sega also contributed some staff late in development because the original build of Code Veronica was hitting some hiccups on the Dreamcast hardware. And so Sega wanted to make sure as something of a, a big show-off piece for the console that it performed really well. Code Veronica also changes up something of the thematic context of Resident Evil. In the past, uh, the games had either been... Uh, the games had tended to be very oriented around like corporate mischief and, and uh, scientific evil and so forth. And here we move out of North America. We move first to Europe for the game's introduction, and then to a heavily European-influenced island uh, somewhere out in the ocean. And it introduces these themes of, like, fallen aristocracy and gothic horror, which are much more old-world, I guess you might say, than the kind of the corporate intrigue of the first three Resident Evil games. And I feel like that has kind of an impact on the overall tone of the game. 
Code Veronica was originally planned to be released around the same time as the Dreamcast North American launch in September 1999, 9-9-99, the most famous date in history, but was delayed, prompting the release of a Resident Evil 3 Dreamcast port in its place. A pretty rare port at this point, as far as I can tell. It was eventually published by Capcom in Japan in North America in February 2000, and then in Europe in May 2000. As sort of a strange epilogue to this story, Kato would leave Capcom six years later in 2006 to become a consultant for companies trying to expand their reach in Japan. Uh, This was attributed to the fact that while he liked designing games, he needed a better work-life balance uh, to take care of his his family. So good for him. Got out of the rat race. And he left us with a really interesting Resident Evil game. As far as ports and re-releases of Code Veronica, the first big one was Code Veronica X. This appeared first on the Dreamcast and then came to the PlayStation 2, and then appeared in very limited quantities on the GameCube. It was much later republished on the PlayStation 4 as a PS2 classic. This is the most easily accessible version of the game. It made uh, story and cutscene changes, not as many as you'd expect for a re-release in my opinion. But um, it adds a few scenes. Wesker meets and attacks Claire on Rockford Island. That doesn't happen in the original. Uh, Steve is changed to look less like Leonardo DiCaprio, (laughs) which I think is very funny. The fight between Wesker and Alexia towards the end of the game is less one-sided in Code Veronica X. In the original, Wesker just gets his butt kicked. In Code Veronica X, of course, he voluntarily leaves. Finally, uh, there's a key bit of continuity added at the end of Code Veronica X, where Wesker takes Steve's body so he can get a copy of the T-Veronica virus. The original releases of Code Veronica X came with a bonus DVD called Wesker's Report, where uh, the voice actor for Wesker just hams it up, going through the entire series from his perspective. And there was uh, then a later revision to Wesker's report that corrected some minor errors and included content related to Resident Evil Zero. In 2011, an HD version of Code Veronica X was released. This interested me as kind of a big nerd because it runs in Capcom's MT framework, as opposed to the original engine that Next Tech designed. The MT framework was the game engine that Capcom made for Dead Rising from 2006 and then later used for Resident Evil 5 and Resident Evil 6. This version is infamously darker than the original version, so even though its menus are in a much higher resolution, some people still prefer the original Code Veronica X. This plays out very similarly to Resident Evil 2. One of the big differences, well, two big differences, being that the uh, 180 degree quick turn from Resident Evil 3 is included here. Mm -hmm. As Chris alluded to in development, some systems from 3 are missing, like the dodge system. And you cannot, there's not a separate aim for environmental objects. 
So there's not traps or right. anything that you can set off manually here. Like it's like there the barrels are still here, though. You just can't aim manually. You just can't auto-aim at them. Mm-hmm. Right. The knife gets a big improvement here as well. The knife can register multiple hits as it passes through an enemy, oh. making it significantly more effective, which is kind of nice, but also a little irritating for flow of gameplay because what I found to be the most effective way to conserve ammo was to shoot a zombie just enough for it to fall down, sprint up to it, switch to the knife, and then slash at it as it got up. If you're close enough when you do that, the knife will register about three hits as it goes through, so you only need to slash the zombie like twice. uh, I got discouraged from doing that in the original Resident Evil 1, 2, and 3 because if you try that there, it doesn't work. And so by this point, I just stashed my knife in the box and gave it up. Yeah. Uh, I almost never played with a knife. (laughs) Me neither. It's ridiculously effective in this one, which again is nice, but it's annoying that it adds a little bit of a menu tax onto every single zombie you decide to kill. Yeah. Real like Zelda Link's Awakening kind of vibes. Mm -hmm. I just been burned by the knife so much that I didn't even think to use it really. Yeah. Yeah. Same. So an evolution of the zapping system is brought forward with this. I think there's two instances in Resident Evil 2, right, where the subsequent playthroughs matter. There's Mm -hmm. a point where there's two items that you can choose between, and one is left behind for the second playthrough, and there's also a puzzle in the lab that requires you to set up on the first playthrough to be finished on the second playthrough. Mm -hmm. So the way Code Veronica is structured is that instead of having two separate campaigns that play sort of in parallel to one another at the same time frame Mm -hmm. you go through as one character and then it will switch you to the second character and you go sequentially and in some of those instances you go through the same areas and those areas have been affected by what the first character did so there's a lot more overlap there meaning if you leave items on the ground then the second character can pick them up (laughs) so you probably want to leave a lot of items on the ground right spencer Uh, you don't so I like this in principle because I was I was really thinking about this because I wanted to like this system because in Resident Evil, there's always a balance. Every encounter you're faced with this kind of risk versus reward analysis where you have to determine if you want to spend ammo to kill a zombie mm-hmm. or try to evade the zombie and risk getting hurt and taxing your healing items. And there's a lot of things you have to think about when making that choice, you know, whether or not it's there's a lot of locked doors around. So, you know, you'll be going back through that hallway multiple times, etc. But no matter what, you always have something of a buffer. So if you scour everywhere and collect all the ammo and all the health items and you do a good job up to a certain point, you can have something of a surplus. And that gives you some leeway in terms of how you execute things. And I really, really liked this idea that you by leaving items behind you could essentially leverage that buffer to give you an easier time later on in the game if you have Mm -hmm. just a less stockpile to work with on your first character and Mm -hmm. you have more stuff for the harder parts that seemed like a really interesting risk reward kind of um proposal to me the way the reason why this fails there's a few reasons one There's actually not that much overlap. There's a lot of areas you can go as Claire that you don't actually go back to as Chris. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when 
our Chris told me that I want to leave a lot of ammo behind. So again, this system is not transparent to the player. Uh, this is something that you just discover as you play through it. So I was told that I about this system and that I want to leave a lot of ammo behind. I ended up just not having hardly any resources proceeding through the clear portion of this game because I was really aggressively... Well, what's the opposite of... Ag I was going to say aggressively leaving things behind. I think like there's a better way to say that, but you know what I mean. Um, I was really favoring the Chris part of the playthrough, but such a large portion of the pre-Antarctic base section you don't actually go to as Chris. That yeah. was just resources yeah. I lost. Yeah, I really need to stop giving advice on these games before fully replaying <laughs> them. Uh, this was like, this was a dim recollection that I had that like, if you take everything as Claire, then you don't get to find it as Chris. And so I did the exact same thing as Spencer. I went through the whole first half of this game with like barely any ammunition. Mm -hmm. And then when I played through the later portion as Chris, I thought, well, it would have been nice to go back and collect some of that ammunition that I missed. That was my experience because I thought, I thought I was cashing the strat. I thought I was just like, all right, like, this is how Resident Evil is. Gotta be smart with yeah. this. Gotta leave it there. You know, don't waste your ammo. If you can run past zombies, do it. And in the first half, I was just like, all right, I'm not actually going to do this. I'm going to have, like, a lot of ammo. This is going to be great. And then I found that I was actually lacking ammo mm -hmm. later on. And I'm just like, uh, wait, no, what? This is not... I mean, I did manage <laughs> to get through the game, but... This speaks again to the idea that um, the game kind of throws things at you that you aren't expecting. Yeah. Um, it, it prepares you for playing as Claire for almost the entirety of it. And then it's like, oh, by the way, Chris is here. Yeah, it's, it's like a twist that you really only know the second time. Mm -hmm. And strangely it, it almost like builds in a, a resolution to this problem in that the item box the traditional resident evil item boxes here and carries over between the two characters so in fact the better strategy is to collect everything as claire but to store as much as possible within the item box so that chris has access to it too mm -hmm. that's just not a reasonable thing for a player to assume like there has never been a Resident Evil game where two different characters have access to the same item pool using an item box before. There's a problem here, though. Yeah. And it's and this is like the core of what I dislike about this system. So the normal flow of Resident Evil, when, let's say, you stumble into a boss on accident and you're under-equipped and you get killed, or the game strongly hints that a boss is coming so you want to gear up for it, mm -hmm. at least the way I perceive it should be played... When you go into the boss encounter, you want to stock up on your strongest stuff and your healing items. Mm -hmm. You're not in exploration and puzzle mode. You want to empty your inventory slots and come in armed to the teeth. But when that fight ends, it then transitions you to another character. So those things are not in your item box. Mm -hmm. There's an instance where you are switched to a character, for example. Or So on the first transition from Claire to Chris, you get to an item box... But if you brought your good items with you as Claire, so your exploding arrow tips, your grenade launcher, if you brought those with you as Claire to fight Nosferatu before it transitioned over, you don't have access to those weapons as Chris. So yeah. nothing in there actually helps you with the boss fight that's coming up. Mm -hmm. And that's very difficult. Yep. So any squirreling away of resources you've done doesn't actually help you you had to have just known that that transition was coming ahead of time and left things in the item box accordingly 
Additionally, later on, there's a point where it transitions from Chris to Claire. And so if if you decide to try to accommodate yourself to the systems the game has shown you prior to this, you are going to go into that transition pretty lean because you want to leave everything in the item box for Claire. Mm -hmm, But then after that point, it transitions you to Chris in a boss fight and does not give you access to an item box before that boss fight. So if you unloaded your best resources into the item box, you're then screwed on that fight. It's a really intense punishment for something that you can't see coming. Yeah. And all of that was just an extremely long-winded way of trying to showcase that the cool ideas that this system ostensibly is supposed to promote, none of those decisions actually matter. The only specific po- decisions that do matter are ones that you, the player cannot make without having prior knowledge of when those transitions are going to happen. Yep. Yeah, it's a shame that it was rooted in such a good idea, which was Kato seeing the zapping system of RE2 and thinking, like, what if we did this but in a more complete, complex way, which is an admirable goal. Yeah, it it feels like this was very close to being something very special and cool, Mm -hmm. Yeah, but missed just enough and, like, veered off into something that I absolutely hate. (laughs) (laughs) So, a couple neat new mechanics. Uh, We've got dual-wielding here. Yeah. You can't select individual weapons to use in each hand. This is more of the Dark Souls 3 style of paired weapons are found as like a single object. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when dual wielding, I couldn't figure out a more, like a better way to cycle through this or control this. It seemed to be that in order to switch between either focusing both guns on one target or splitting your aim between two targets was just a function of repressing the aim button to kind of toggle through it. Yeah, I think it's just AI. I don't think you have any real control over it. Okay. Yeah, but this gives you the option to shoot two targets at once, which is kind of neat. Yeah, especially because there are more zombies in a room here than most previous Resident Evil games. Yeah. Yeah, this does throw a lot of them at you. Also, there are weapons that let you aim in first person. Because, as Chris mentioned, this is not pre-rendered backgrounds. This is all 3D rendered. Uh, there's some. There's two segments in the game, I believe, that allow you to uh, go into first person, aim mm-hmm. down sight, and shoot bosses with precision, which is kind of neat. Yeah, it really changes things up. Like, bosses can have weak points for the first time in a Resident Evil game. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So, for new weapons, we have machine pistols. These are dual-wielding weapons that we mentioned. They have a burst fire. There's also submachine guns that you get that are pretty similar, except they're fully automatic. Mm -hmm. The assault rifle returns. I don't think this is different from what we've seen in 2 and 3 by much at all. No, yeah, all three of these that you've talked about are all percentage-based guns as well. We should camp out on the bowgun for a second, because my <laughs> god, did they neuter the bowgun. This thing is terrible. Yeah. Is it, this does the... it do less damage than the pistol? Significantly less. Okay. Stop nerfing the bowgun. I've, yeah. I've noticed that it takes about five to eight arrows per zombie. Good gracious. In my personal experience, it was weighted much more heavily toward the eight side. Yes. And if a zombie gets knocked down and comes back up, it doesn't, like, they don't get knocked down halfway through their health. It seemed to me that you have to essentially kill them a second time. It takes the same amount of hits. So there were situations where I would have to use 16 arrows to kill a zombie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Thank goodness the game just throws them at you hand over fist. I think I must have had 200 arrows. Uh, Although admittedly, that's because I missed the bowgun at first. So I just kept collecting ammo and 
couldn't find it. They give you a lot of arrows, and it shoots more quickly than the handgun, but, man, it's terrible. And the arrows have a travel time, so it's really easy to miss with it. Yeah. So between how hard it is to hit zombies when they're far away from you and how little damage it does, I found very little use for this. This was just a, I don't want to waste better ammo here right? kind of situation, and I would try to work bow gun shots into like a pistol rotation or something just to sort of dilute the amount of ammo i was using from a good gun because trying to kill something purely with the bow gun resulted in me getting hit more often than i wanted to yeah yeah i can't even imagine trying to kill one of the stronger enemies with a bow gun the first bandersnatch you run into i killed just with the bow gun wow it was terrible (laughs) (laughs) because i i I don't know a better time to bring this up, so I may as well do it here. Sure, yeah. Uh, item boxes are a lot more sparse in this than in previous mm-hmm, Resident Evil. True. So the first, I want to say two times I was in the area where the bowgun was, I just didn't have an inventory slot for it. And it wasn't until right before the Banders- first Bandersnatch fight that I had specifically made space and went back and collected this. So I didn't realize how weak it was. And I went into that fight assuming that it was a shotgun analog like it was in uh in two yeah and that was a real miserable fight trying to kill a boss with something that is basically half as strong as the starting handgun i wonder if the item box quirk is a function more of the level design expanding in this because it felt like this had about the same number of item boxes as Resident Evil 1 and Resident Evil 2, but those were much more compact spaces that you cycled back in, whereas the areas in this are much larger and more spread out. I felt as though, despite there being, you know, however many item boxes there were, none of the safe rooms really felt safe. Um, especially the one where you actually first encounter the boss, uh, Nosferatu, um, it, it, it felt ominous and it turned out, uh, you know, to be right. Um, whether it's your first time playing or your 20th, like mine, you always get the feeling from most of the safe rooms in Code Veronica that like, they're not as safe as, as they want you to think they are and usually mm-hmm. uh, I, I like if you go to like the resident evil 2 safe rooms you know they have like the calming music and uh you know there's little puzzles to do yeah and these ones it's like the music is slightly less calm <laughs> a little less calm and it still gives you those puzzles but you're it, it also feels like at any moment like something's gonna pop out at you and you're just gonna have to deal with that yeah, you've got like doors rattling or like sometimes you can hear zombies off in the distance. Yeah. It feels like it's a step on the way to Resident Evil 4 where they just abandoned safe rooms entirely. Well, safe rooms in 4, I think, were replaced with what are you buying? Yes, although zombies can... One of the things that I find interesting, and I'm sure we'll get to this in the Resident Evil 4 episode, but one of the things that I find interesting about Resident Evil 4 is that you can be attacked. In the merchant areas in in uh, Resident Evil Four, which of course you can't be in traditional save rooms. I guess it was like we we were getting there at some point. Yeah, exactly. Like this was this was a, never a stop a on the room. train route between Resident Evil Two and Resident Evil Four. 
Right. We alluded to the first-person weapons. The first one you get is the sniper rifle. Yeah. Alfred will drop a sniper rifle, and you use that specific to fight a specific boss where you use it to target its weak point. And the sniper rifle is taken away from you after that fight, so you don't get to carry that forward into any other parts of the game. Yeah, and you don't get any additional ammunition for it either. Right. Uh, And then for the last boss, you get the linear launcher. This is like a sci-fi rocket launcher. The, Mm -hmm. The name is weird. It makes me wonder if that was a goofy localization of a rail gun or something like that. I was thinking the same. It's just launches linearly like a rocket launcher or any other (laughs) gun. the age of this name sounds cool for a weapon, so we're going to say it's this. Yeah. Or, you know, this name sounds cool for a a game like Resident Evil. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) So Code Veronica does have a bonus game mode Mm -hmm. called Battle Mode. This is different from Mercenaries. This is more of an arcade-style gauntlet of rooms with limited ammo. Yeah, it's a lot more like the battle mode in the original Resident Evil for Sega Saturn. Mm -hmm. Uh, It does let you play first-person mode, though. Pretty cool. That it does. Claire and Chris are available from the start, but there are additional characters to unlock, including both Steve. I can't believe we've gone this long without talking about Steve, Jesus Christ. I know, (laughs) yeah. You're going to hear a lot about Steve in the second half, listeners. Let me tell you, you're going to hear a lot about Steve. Yeah. Uh, Wesker... And there's also alternate costume and loadout for Claire. Mm-hmm. What does DIJ stand for? I don't know. I don't think it actually stands for anything. Oh yeah, that's just the name. Yeah, Kami Jace, can you can you tell us about DIJ? Yeah, yeah I love DIJ. <laughs> Me too. I love DIJ. Um, so from what I understand, um, DIJ is actually the rat that you kind of save from the locker room mm-hmm. um, in the first safe room, um, quote unquote, in uh, the Antarctic part of the game. Yeah, um, that's right. And you find DIJ's quote unquote diary um, throughout the battle mode, I believe, right? At least in Code Veronica X HD, which was the version of this that I played, it was a yeah. complete document. I just um, I found oh, it okay. in the casino in the battle mode. Yes, it might that's have been right. like you pieced it together in the original Dreamcast Resident I, Evil Code Veronica. No, that does sound right. I believe okay. that you find it in the casino the same way, and yeah. each point in Dij's journal um, describes a certain point in the actual game. So not only did this rat somehow find its way into a locker in the Antarctic mission or in the Antarctic part of the of the game? Yeah. But the rat was also there for the first part when Claire's being taken into the prison cell. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time Alfred attacks Claire, um, it even knows like that Wesker has. Um, you know been on the island for a, a, a while yeah um it witnesses the end of the island blowing up like it's it's there throughout the entire game and one of the fun parts of um its retelling of the story is that it views claire as this like <laughs> dangerous um <laughs> kind of weapon wielding goddess of some kind yeah he describes Um, her as quote a valkyrie a goddess of destruction and yeah 
and it's it's fascinating that from the point of view of a rat like even they're even they're like oh no this woman's dangerous i gotta go (laughs) but Mm -hmm. then at the same time she has saved that rat's life like time and time again i actually spotted him a couple of times earlier in the game um he he does make cameo appearances if you look really closely and you happen to um transition the camera at just the right time I want to say I encountered him on the island in, uh, like, the army training facility. I saw him, like, skitter across in the background at one point. I feel like, um, like, anyone who's played the game enough has probably seen him, like, you know, and I assume it's a him. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think he, he, like, identifies himself as a guy in in the diary, but I wouldn't swear to it. Um, But it's fascinating that, like, Especially me. I've played Code Veronica, I don't know how many times. Like, I I think I said to you, I play it, like, every Christmas or something right, like that. Right, right, right. Um, but I can scarcely remember a time where I saw that rat outside of the point where you free it from the yeah. locker. But at the same time, like, as you're describing seeing it in the training facility, I'm like... I can like I can f- feel it in my mind. Like there's something in my brain that's like, oh yeah, no, he was definitely there. Like yeah, it was <laughs> only just this latest playthrough. Like I jumped out of my seat when I saw him, and I was like, it's Dij. <laughs> it's it's really kind of a I I love Easter egg kind of things like that. Same same. Um, so knowing that the creators of this game cared enough to like, what if we put a rat in and the rat is at every single moment, but then also the (laughs) rat has a diary and you know what I mean? Like the, the very like, um, almost childish kind of, uh, um, playfulness with something as horrific as, uh, (laughs) zombies. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I eat that up. It feels like a very kind of like mario move or maybe like a like a dragon quest kind of thing like it it really has that like there's a there's a real whimsy to dij Mm -hmm. that doesn't make it into a lot of resident Mm -hmm. evil games can't be fun as they are uh but dij really kind of stands out as a really like Mm -hmm. unique little moment of the resident evil series good old dij love dij does anybody mind if i give a brief dramatic reading of his uh the, the culmination of his diary oh do please do So in reference to the fight between Chris and Wesker, just to set you up, quote, it was a grueling fight head to head. Was the man who knew that girl a monster? The fight looked like it could last forever. Then suddenly there was an explosion which interfered the fight. That was the last chance. I had to get out of there. I snuck through the hatch of the sub as it was about to close. Finally, I was released from a world of death and I was able to come back to a world where desire and power ruled. (laughs) It's so fascinating. <laughs> the one thing I do want to point out is the um, comparison to Claire as a Valkyrie um, because of the Valkyrie print on her jacket. That's brilliant. Yeah, I never caught that. There's like on the back of Claire's jacket, um, I, I believe it's a Valkyrie and it says something like, let me live or still alive or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I can't remember exactly what it says, but but I, I can picture it in my mind, yeah. And then, but the, the Resident Evil 2 version in particular, um, 
uh, if you go to Chris's desk, he has a similar Valkyrie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's holding a bomb, I believe, and it says Made in Heaven. Yes. Um, so it's like the two of them uh, have this similar kind of uh, kind of death around them. And it's, it's very um, kind of tongue-in-cheek in a way, and I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah, yeah, good catch. So yeah, bear with me here. It, uh, we can see from these notes that D.I.J., a rat, has a penchant for sneaking onto submarines. Is D.I.J. in Resident Evil Infinite Darkness? Is he the one that infects the sub in episode 3? I think he three? is. Oh my you goodness. <laughs> you found the through line. Hmm. That's Claire's yep. next appearance in the series, too, uh, chronologically after this. Infinite Darkness 2, D.I.J.'s Revenge. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is also, I guess, in that same vein, worth noting that the uh, T-Virus spreads in Resident Evil 2 and 3 via mostly rats. Yeah. I'm just saying, he's he's actually the mastermind behind all these games. <laughs> he's just slowly watching. Probably. Stands to reason. Sure. D.I.J. is just <laughs> controlling Wesker like Ratatouille. That's why he has superpowers. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, who wants to take new monsters? I can cover it, if you don't mind, if no one else wants to jump in. I know I talked a lot during that gameplay section. No, that's all right, yeah. Because I have a lot to say about moths. (laughs) Oh, we, we, you and me both, man. (laughs) So, the first new monster we're exposed to is the Bandersnatch. This is, I think, the most iconic monster from this one. Bandersnatches are essentially just... Big zombies with stretchy arms. Yep. <laughs> well, it's it's one big stretchy arm and one little itty bitty arm. And they will stretch the one big arm out and kind of whip it at you. That's really the unique twist as far as combat is mm-hmm. that they just have a long range attack that they use. Their animations are kind of neat because the way they move around is by using that mm-hmm. arm almost like a grappling hook. Yeah, that is pretty fun. That's actually the worst thing about them, though. Um, normally with most monsters, they're at least a little slowed down by, like, mm-hmm. stairs or, you yeah. know, an elevator or something. But the Bandersnatch is just like, haha, you thought you, thought you were going to get away. <laughs> that moment where it, like, throws itself up onto a balcony that you've just run up to from below uh, has some real kind of nemesis energy to it. Mm-hmm. Although the Bandersnatch isn't remotely as cool as Nemesis. No, not even a little bit. Now, Chris has moth in the new monster section, but this is not the first time we've seen the moth, Chris. It's not, no, and I'm happy that you point that out. (laughs) Yep, so we first saw the moth in Resident Evil 2. It took over a room of the lab and is pretty inconsequential. It dies fast and 
the larva that's blocking a computer doesn't do much. Yeah, nominally a boss fight. Yeah. Uh, these moths are quite different. In the Antarctic base, there is a hallway lousy with moths. And I hate this damn hallway for a couple reasons. One, the moths respawn indefinitely. So you cannot opt to clear this hallway out mm-hmm. and not have to deal with it again. Right. Every time you go through it, and you will be going through it a lot, you have to either burn your ammo to shoot down these moths, which is not necessarily easy to do when they start flying. No. Or you have to try to avoid them. I find avoiding them damn near impossible. I could never do it reliably, and I went through that hallway 30 times, you know? Yeah. So when you get hit, they poison you. But they don't just poison you, they implant a larva in you. And so if they poison you, if you get to the end of the hallway, there's a blue herb uh, planter there, and you can cure the poison. But then, later on, that parasite will pop and poison you again. Mm -hmm. So every time you go through this hallway, it is an ammo tax. It's either an ammo tax or it's a blue herb tax Mm -hmm. because you have to... Either to, or a time tax, because your options are to either just stand around and wait for the second poison to pop, and then use the blue herb planter, or make sure you have a blue herb with you so that three rooms later, when it repoisons you, you can cure it. Because you really don't want to get stuck a few rooms later, poisoned, and with a, a stunned animation in the midst of fighting a group of zombies. It's always a, a struggle with any kind of poisonous monsters in these games. Mm-hmm. Because just like in RPGs, you don't really know how that poison is affecting you. Um, So the amount of times I've played through Resident Evil games as a whole, being poisoned and thinking like, okay, I know a blue herb is coming up. I just have to run to that place where the blue herb is and I should be fine. And then either dying or being in really bad danger health, um, I can can count forever. Like it's, it's... it happens all the time. I think it happens to even the most experienced Resident Evil players. I mean, Poison, like any game, is just this uh, ticking, literal ticking time bomb. Right, is. and like critically in Resident Evil, like you can't see your health when you're poisoned. Yeah. Right. Like it's always nice when you have those games where it's just like you get poisoned, but only during battle, you know? When the battle's over, yeah. it's just like, all right, I'm done, you know clean yourself up, whatever. But then you have the games where it's just like, nope, the poison is enduring. Good luck, don't die. Yeah, I think this is the first Resident Evil that really goes all in on poison as a mechanic, and it's rough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if uh, you didn't include it in here because you didn't think it was interesting enough, but this is the first time bats are used as an enemy. Oh, I forgot play. about them. You're right, you're right. Yeah. So because yeah. this is in a shiny new engine that has dynamic lighting... There are moments where it encourages you to equip the lighter like a uh, weapon to show off the fact that it can illuminate dark areas that you're in. Yeah. Uh, Additionally, it will scare off bats. They are a very annoying enemy. You can slash them out of the air with your knife, but they will almost certainly hit you a couple times before you get them all successfully. They're a lot like crows in earlier Resident Evil. Yeah, so the intended way to deal with them is to go through that area with your lighter out to drive them away. I'm... Very upset that you've um, told me this because, <laughs> again, as someone who has played this game a billion times, I've never known that. That is, I I always ditch the lighter after I'm done with it, 
And so uh, yeah. I, I never thought about that. The game even encourages you to ditch the lighter. It, it kind of leans into that because you can trade the lighter to uh, what's-his-face to um, to get a lockpick. And mm-hmm. you've already been through so many areas with bats that if you happen to have stumbled into the knowledge that the lighter keeps bats away, it creates this little bit of tension where you're like, oh no, my best defense against bats is gone now. We have a new iteration of the hunter here. Two new iterations. Right. So one is the drone-directed hunter. I kind of love this from a gameplay perspective. I hated mm-hmm. hunters in RE1 and 3. And this game gives you a way to avoid those encounters. Mm -hmm. So instead of releasing hunters directly, Wesker sends out these drones that move along ceilings and walls with a laser beam. And if you trip that beam, then it dispatches a hunter. But you always have the ability, with the exception of the first one that hits you as a result of a cutscene. After that, you always have the option to time your movement precisely to get by that laser and not have a hunter come after you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really neat. And they have an audio cue, so you even know if they're around the corner, you can hear that there's one of those drones. Yeah. It's a surprisingly um, generous thing to come from the same people that made Moth Hallway. Moth Hallway. Yeah. <laughs> the game. Or who made the hunter in general? I mean, I, I'm the hunter, I think, as an iconic enemy, is one of the most iconic enemies in the series. Right. Um... It's also the most annoying. They're very um, I think, and they're, they're, they're the scariest, I think, too, because um, certain classes of hunter, if you have below a certain amount of health, can do this kind of jump slash that just takes the character's head off. Yep. So, like, thanks for that, Capcom. <laughs> um, but something I find interesting is that... Um, the, I'm, I'm looking at a few of the fandom wikis for Resident Evil. Sure. Um, and the Hunter, in this case, is classified as the Hunter 2, which is really? um, hmm. an, an upgraded version of the Hunter Alpha from uh, Resident Evil 1, um, and obviously the Beta and Beta 2 versions. Um, and what is classified as the drone is called a Seeker. Um, and it actually reminds you that this is not the first or last time you will deal with the Seeker um, because they are also employed in Resident Evil 4 as a, uh enemy by Jack Krauser. Um, and those versions can shoot and blow up um, at you. Uh, so, um, you know, if you weren't annoyed by Wesker's uh, drones before, wait until 2004 when you're really going to be sick of them. <laughs> Cool find. I never made the connection between these drones and Krauser's drones. Yeah, when you think about it, it's all Wesker's uh, Right, of ideas. course. So, of course, he's going to be like, oh, yeah, these things? I love these. Here, you can have them, Jack. Yeah. Uh, there's Black Widow spiders. I don't know how these are mechanically different from normal spiders, but they do get their own wiki entry, so yes. they're different. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, they can spit poison further, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other spiders could spit poison too, though. No, I forgot. Yeah. They might just be different aesthetically, which is enough. <laughs> yeah. As for bosses, we do get the return of a tyrant. I won't go into that, really. It functions the same as the tyrants we've seen in the last three or four games. The kind of aesthetic difference of the T-078 um, is, first of all, it's got 
like a double digit number <laughs> most yeah, of the time thanks for hitting like, us with the the tyrant number there yes <laughs> most of the other tyrants are like the to1 or the to5 or 7 or something like that this one is the 78th i guess um and he's got like he doesn't have real hands he's got like mace hands like the the weapon like um, yeah spiky spiky fists <laughs> he's got like yeah this the spiky like I don't know, quote unquote monster hands yes. that you would think of. Um, he still has the aesthetic of being like a nude gray person. Um, and abs. <laughs> As they all do. Abs he of is, steel. If he had a better face and not the disgusting hands, he might be a looker. <laughs> Just saying. I was going to say, it is, we should maybe mention the two boss fights, because even though as a design he didn't seem that different to me, the two boss fights are somewhat unique. Sure, sure, mm-hmm. sure, yeah. Hit us with that. So the first time you fight him, or forced to fight him, you're in a corridor being pushed backwards toward some fire, and that's actually a DPS race. You have to down him before he pushes you back far enough that you get to the fire because if he pushes you into the fire that's an instant uh death condition yep. yeah and what's dps stand for here spencer damage per second yeah the second fight is on the back of a plane and this is a very limited space which makes it pretty challenging because you don't have a lot of room to dodge but there's a conveyor belt that will launch cargo out of the back of this cargo plane it's mm-hmm. on a cooldown timer and you don't just deplete the boss's hit points you have to get his hit points low enough and then shoot the cargo at him to knock him out of the back of the plane because you've spilled enough blood on the belt that the cargo moves along that he can't uh keep a grip on the floor anymore which i think is um (laughs) again it's one of those things where if you don't know how to do this fight or it's your first time playing you're gonna have a really hard time with it right Yeah, this is pretty contentious. I actually really like this fight. I feel like it's one of the Mm -hmm. cooler tyrant fights in the series so far. But I know a lot of people get frustrated with it because it does have kind of a hard cutoff point before it. If you haven't collected enough ammunition, you might be up the creek here. Yeah. Such close quarters, too. Jesus. Can you go flying off the back of the plane? Yes, you can. That's pretty great. Who's our next boss, Spencer? You have it down as the gulp worm. I thought it was just called the gulper. I deferred to the wiki. I believe I found it as Gulpworm on the wiki. Okay. Gulpworm is close enough for my for my sensibilities. Yeah. This is a graboid from Tremors, basically. <laughs> it really <laughs> is. A... There was something in, in the water at Capcom because I, I like that the Resident Evil 3 and Code Veronica teams independently developed a Tremors monster. Yeah. I... Um, actually have a true disgust for worm monsters after oh, Resident really? Evil. Yeah. Not um, for any other reason except um, each time they are designed, it is worse than the last. Mm-hmm. Um, so the one in three is kind of like this um, uh, it's got like sharp teeth, I guess you could call it. Right. <laughs> um, and then this one, its mouth is almost like also its arms and when it first reveals itself to you um it kind of moves those appendages in a way that i find completely disgusting Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i was like you know what i i'm off 
um, I'm truly, truly off of worm <laughs> monsters for the rest of my life. I don't want to see another one. It's like I'm, I'm coming down. No more, no more gulpers. <laughs> and and thankfully, I don't think Resident <laughs> Evil really uses them after this point. It was just it. Everybody at Capcom had seen Tremors and just had to get it out of their system. Yep, at least once. There's nothing very interesting to this boss fight, though. I suppose it's just you you shoot it until it dies. You encounter it more than once, but you it's optional. True, you true. can avoid it uh, the first time you run into it. The second time when you beat him, he throws up a dude like uh, John Voight at the end of Anaconda. Just like John Voight. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to say, I really like the context of this fight because the gulp worm eats that guy. And then Chris wants to go after the gulp worm to save that guy. And all I could think was like, you're not saving that guy, Chris. He just got eaten by a giant worm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's he, he's super dead. <laughs> he's not coming back from this up next we have nosferatu and and just to set the stage just to set the stage for listeners this guy is kind of like a, a vampire looking guy he's he's like kind of bound uh his arms are like bound up he's got like crazy like appendages whipping all around mm-hmm. spits poison and he has an exposed beating heart yeah yes he does which is great <laughs> And I'll get into who and what he is <laughs> right, right, right. later. So basically how this fight works, that you're on like a top of a plateau. A parking garage or something in the Antarctic. A helipad, parking garage, something. So you have to like fight this uh, tentacled, spider-limbed creature um, atop here. And he fights really fast. Well, does he fight really fast? He attacks really fast. His limbs kind of come out of nowhere. And the problem is, is like, this level has, I swear to God, ice physics. If anyone says that it doesn't have ice physics, I will fight them. Because you can easily fall off this very small ledge because you're running around right. him not trying right. to get hit, right? Which you do with every boss. Um, and what will happen to me very rarely is that you're supposed to be able to grab the ledge before you fall. Really? Yes, you actually are supposed to grab the ledge before you fall. This never that has not happened to me. No, didn't happen for me either. I read this up. This is these people apparently smarter than I am who are just like, no no, you shouldn't die. I got caught by Nosferatu so many times. Mm. Yeah, I died maybe two or three times to this guy. Luckily two they or put three. a um <laughs> yeah. by that by times like three, and that's me. Oh lordy. Dude, I died so many. I was happy that they put a save room right before him. Yes. Because it, it made it more comical than anything. I mean, comical because I only fell two to three times. If it had been, you know, 12 to 13 times, I might have felt differently. But the, the cool part about this fight, just the, the thing that I really enjoyed about it, was that it's it's really the first Resident Evil boss fight with a weak point. Uh, since you have to use the... Uh, you don't have to, but you should use the sniper rifle to go into first-person mode and aim at the exposed heart. I will say he moves around enough and the visibility is poor enough that I emptied the entire sniper rifle clip and still hadn't taken him down. Mm-hmm. So oh. I'm not sure the optimal way to fight him, but I I did uh, eventually win without being knocked off to my death, as I had been the first several times. But were you poisoned is the true question. That is a good question. I did get poisoned fighting him at least once. At yes. least once for me, too. He did poison me. 
How's that work? So the way I've always played it and the way my brother played it when I watched him as um, a kid uh, on the Dreamcast is we got close enough so that if you could see the poison kind of overlapping or not really overlapping, I guess that's not a right word, but like if you can see the poison getting kind of close through the sniper rifle, Mm -hmm. you take your shot and then you bolt and then you keep repeating that until he's dead. Um, um, you want to be close enough to be able to see him, um, but not so close that like the poison looks like it's gonna like hit the scope of your rifle, basically. Right, right, right. And so you know it's kind of a rinse and repeat after that. And I've never really had trouble with uh, Nosferatu. He might hit me once, like he might slap me once or twice, but that's just me getting greedy because I'll take two shots instead <laughs> of one. I yeah, feel I, like I must have just got really good RNG on this fight huh. because he just sort of walked at me at a straight line and I just kept shooting him in the heart until the fight ended. That's yeah. a best case scenario, huh? He did poison me though. I didn't I thought you were going to bring this up, so I'm I'm sorry if I'm stealing your thunder on this. <laughs> uh no the Nosferatu poison cannot be cured by a blue herb. Yes, so if that you is end true. the fight poisoned, later on when you reunite with Chris, you have to go do a little extra side quest to get uh, a cure for this poison. No kidding. And you do not have to do that if you don't get poisoned in the fight. Cool. Yeah. I'm going to lump the albinoids and the giant black widow together yeah. because they're similar in how those fights are structured. Mm-hmm. The albinoid is a giant, uh, is, I think it's supposed to be a newt or a salamander. Yeah, that's my yes. understanding. Uh, it's an amphibious creature that can electrocute water. And the giant black widow is just a big spider. These are interesting because... These show up in a room that has an item on the ground that you need to pick up to move forward. You don't actually have to kill the boss. They're just a hazard in the room. Mm -hmm. So if you can run around them and or just tank hits and heal yourself through it, you can get to that item and then leave the room and still leave those bosses alive, which is what I did in both of those cases. That's what I did with the albinoid. Um, Funny enough, I tried to kill it first, but couldn't figure out how to hit it. Uh, because it's a kind of a lower plane than you're at. Maybe if you get down close to it, you can shoot it, but I didn't want to chance that. So in the Albinoids case, I just got the item and left. The Black Widow, I just assumed that it was like other Resident Evil boss fights and I had to kill it, which is absurd. I had already fought and escaped from the Albinoids, so I don't know why I assumed the Black Widow didn't work on the same logic, but uh, I took that Black Widow out. (laughs) We mentioned Steve. Uh, yes. spoilers ahead poor Steve uh, gets infected and turns into basically a Hulk yeah a Hulk with a, Hulk with a battle axe mm-hmm. <laughs> I hate this fight Steve is ridiculously fast his hits do a ton of damage he attacks very fast and he has a very long reach Yep. you can't fight Steve you have to just run from Steve and the fight ends when you run far enough away from him to trigger a cutscene. I could not get this fight and the tri- there of course you know as is the case with any video game pretty much there are YouTube videos of people somehow dodging every attack mm. and getting through this fight without getting hit. I don't know about that. But the that. convention but the conventional wisdom seems to be the way you beat this fight is to just come with enough full healing items to heal your way through all the damage he deals, which is going to usually be two full heals, like a first aid spray, uh, and just running in a straight line away from him. Yeah. It's a crappy fight. It's one of the worst in the series so far, wouldn't you say? 
I think it's my least favorite for sure. Yeah. It's very unforgiving and mechanically uninteresting and involves an absurd monster that doesn't resemble anything else from the series. Well, I I kind of dig the let's call him T Veronica Steve. Okay, okay. Um as it were um because First of all, he takes on a a, a, a kind of lizard like appearance that looks like um like a G Bergen slashed with a hunter. Mm-hmm. Um because his face is in his chest. Um but the rest of the monster is kind of like has a form but is still somewhat formless. Yeah. Um and seems to be just working on pure rage, right? He seems like upset that he is a monster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um but, uh, you know, he holds on enough to, you know, trigger that cutscene, uh, spoilers, and, um, you get this kind of, you get actually a decent heartfelt moment where you kind of feel bad for Steve that this has happened to him. Um, he's, I agree with you in that I think he's kind of a, um, throughout, throughout the game, it feels like that they want, they wanted to make him a kind of, punk rock bad boy but instead you got like an emo sad boy yeah um and it's fine for a minute but then he gets kind of annoying um the 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 voice lines that they give um the voice actor who i believe is bill i can't remember um bill houston bill houston oh okay Um, nice the voice lines that they give him are very both subdued and also at the same time uh like like cliched almost Mm -hmm. yeah um you know he his dad shows up as a uh zombie and instead of yelling something that makes sense he yells father um (laughs) as he shoots him father and then continues to just say father 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 over and over and then uh the scene kind of returns with like steve and claire having a a soft moment a tender moment um and he says my dad and i was like oh so you do know a different word like you can say dad (laughs) um when characters yell father i think especially in a modern-ish setting I think it, I, I think it's just poorly written. So um, yeah, it always takes you right out of it. Which again brings me back to Steve's character. I feel like if they gave him the right lines, or if he didn't read it to the letter, um, it, he Steve might be a little bit more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like because he read it to the letter. Um, and because it was written as the way it was, Steve was like pretty, pretty fucking annoying. (laughs) Um, yeah, I agree. Like as a plot device, Steve is not inherently a problem, but the way that Steve is depicted makes it almost impossible to sympathize with him. There's a line he says when he gets the, um, dual submachine guns. (laughs) Oh yeah. Where he says... These are more reliable than any person. 
And I think that line should be or should have been read as I'm more reliable than your brother or something like that. It would have made a lot more sense. And that moment where Claire's kind of asking about Steve's past might have been just a little bit more impactful. Um, Yeah. Additionally, one final bit, this thing that is also cliche is right after that moment, he fires the submachine gun into the air mm-hmm. um, and like, I don't want to talk about it. And then just start shooting. <laughs> right. yep. It's, it's not good. <laughs> it's just not very good. Yeah. And he kind of creeps on Claire too on so the plane. Much. Like there's some kind of weird stuff going on with that. I really don't like that. They set up some kind of uh, will they, won't they between these two yeah. and then had Claire cry over him. I don't, it's so I don't like point. that. Well, it's extra weird, too, because of the way that, like, the extreme maternal energy that Claire puts towards Steve. It makes it really weird both that he's coded as a love interest and the right. fact that that's how she reacts to his weird psychopathic tendencies. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a part where he has these two guns you need, and he's like, I'll trade them for you for something automatic. <laughs> so you bring him these two SMGs. And you give him to him, and he goes to shoot him into the sky like Yosemite Sam, and he's upset that there's no ammo. Yeah. And Claire's reaction is so absurd. She's like, there, there, Steve. It's okay. There's SMG ammo right over there on top of that crate. Here, let's go get it together. <laughs> it's like she's talking to a three-year-old who lost his kite in a tree. But she's right. giving this kid ammunition to fully automatic weapons. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if that problem is in the original script or in the localization or what, but there's there's just it's an incoherence. There's just an incoherence with how Steve is treated. There's so much wrong with it. She has that personality trait as a whole, um, but in in the way that she is kind of paternalistic to Sherry, right. she is paternalistic in the same way to Steve. Which makes it weird. (laughs) It's not good. (laughs) Yeah, this does speak to a lack of diversity in the writing room, I think. Mm -hmm. It's straight out of a uh, fanfic thing. It's just like, and we've lost credibility. Nothing's happening anymore. Yeah, get it together, Sugimura. (laughs) There's also... I'm sorry to keep talking about this, but (laughs) it's like the one thing that I actually do hate about Code Veronica. Um... There's also a two-year age gap between Steve and Claire, which uh-huh. it doesn't sound bad on its face, except um, the, uh, I guess, the original notes state that Claire was born in 1979, um, Steve was born in 1981, which means that during the Rockford Island incident, Claire is 19, so huh. Steve is 17, Yeah, um, which... Again, like, there's some nuance there about age differences. Um, you know, they're both within kind of the same range. Um, he's technically a minor, but in some countries he's not, and so on right. and so forth. But at the same time, it's like, no, it's still weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's definitely weird any way you slice it. Right. I want to add one more anecdote about Steve. I, I It's about how I gave the game's writing way too much credit. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. There's that cutscene you mentioned where he goes on a little uh, monologue about how much more reliable guns are than people. Then that transitions to the next scene where a zombie comes at Claire and Steve turns to go to shoot the zombie and you hear a click but nothing happens. (laughs) 
<laughs> I thought that was the guns jamming. I thought after talking about how reliable guns are, they had his guns jam, and I laughed out loud. I thought that was so funny. But it turns out that's not what happened. That zombie is Steve's father. Yes. And that was just the game trying to give Steve pathos instead uh, and completely yeah. ruining the moment. <laughs> so close to a well-written scene. Right? That what also sense. ruins the moment is his kind of monologue after. He's like, oh, my dad was part of Umbrella. He was such a fool. And like, wait a minute. <laughs> Can we stop? <laughs> you just killed the man. <laughs> I wonder if they were go. It just occurred to me, maybe I'm just shooting in the dark here, but between literally killing his father and crushing on someone who is explicitly maternal <laughs> toward him, he's got a real Oedipal thing going on. Oh, yeah. Wow, good, good catch. Shoot. Yeah. He's, he's a problematic uh, non-fave, I'd say. Yeah. Could you tell us about Alexia Ashford, Spencer? I imagine Hamilton's going to go into this more in the story section. Alexia Ashford is one of the main two protagonists here, or antagonists, uh, the twin of Alfred Ashford. Right. Uh, she is injected with the T. Veronica virus and t- turns into, uh, it's like a big ant monster. You face her in two forms. The first one aesthetically is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. She's a partially transformed humanoid still. She kind of has like a Medusa look going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Inexplicably, one of the powers she has at this stage is that her blood catches fire when exposed to air. Yeah. So the way she fights you is by uh, flicking blood at you, and then the blood will hit the ground and burst into flames a few moments later. Alternatively, she can grab you and just one-shot you. She'll pick your character up, and then you catch fire, and then that's game over, which is a bummer. That happened to me several times, and it was pretty funny. That is the fight that actually soft-locked me, because uh, after you finish the Claire section and you beat Steve... It immediately transitions you into a cutscene where Wesker fights Alexia, and then you take control of Chris and fight her with the inventory you had on Chris the last time you played him before a whole Claire section and boss fight prior to that. Yes. So that's that was a bummer. Mm-hmm. That cutscene does have my favorite line in the game, though. Uh, when she transforms and starts flicking flaming blood everywhere uh, when she's fighting Wesker, Wesker turns to Chris and says something like, Well... You always were my best soldier. You can handle this. And then Wesker runs away. Yeah, it's pretty great. (laughs) That's a good bit. Yeah, that's a good comedic beat. Uh, The second form, she... Actually, there's there's three forms, right? There's a larger ground-based form, and then she takes flight. Yeah, there's like a blob form, and then the final is like a butterfly flying something, something. Mm -hmm. Right, right. A dragonfly. Dragonfly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got Mm -hmm. it iconic to the dragonflies you see throughout the game. Yep. Mm-hmm. So as far as the story is concerned for um, for Code Veronica, it's somewhat immersive. There, 
there's a lot to this story, but it's more expanded on later. Mm-hmm. This story takes place in the perspective of Claire Redfield, who is perpetually looking for her brother Chris, um, as she is in every game. Uh, she ends up going to Paris to an umbrella-owned facility where she is found out, captured, interrogated, and imprisoned. She's sent to an island called Rockford Island, um, and she's sent there to be further interrogated slash maybe experimented on. However, an airstrike, which is not really elaborate on how or who or why it happened, I don't believe, unless someone can correct me, damages the fort that she's in, as well as a lot of the structures on the island. So this releases, one, the T-virus samples that are housed on the island, um, and the bioweapons, and two, also releases Claire, as well as sets up the stage for the game proper. The airstrike is uh, caused by Wesker. Ah, thank you. I could not find out the exact thing as to what caused it. So five noteworthy developments of Code Veronica. I believe this is the first game where it actually really touches upon Wesker's transformation. Mm -hmm. Wesker's power actually comes from the T-Virus, which he was exposed to. He mentions that he needed to die for it to um, activate, um, which is why he actually did set up the tyrant in the first game to kill him on purpose. We were led to expect that he... It was just a freak accident, but no, not quite. Um, This is also the first game, I believe, where we actually see the changes that the virus has made on him specifically. His eyes uh, become slitted. Kind of a glowing yellow-reddish character. uh, Sorry. A glowing reddish, yellowish uh, color. Um, it gives him incredible speed and incredible physical power. He's also able to retain his sanity on one condition. Uh, the T. Veronica virus is similar in the sense that you keep your sanity, but in Wesker's transformation, he actually needs drugs that he needs to consistently give his body to maintain control. Otherwise, he risks last will absolutely lose his mind. And... That's not touched upon a bit more until, I believe, um, uh, Resident Evil 5. But I think he just touches upon it sl- um, kind of lightly in this game. Was there anything that you want to add? Mostly that Wesker has this actually very interesting connection um, with regard to how the Ashford family is kind of... Um... Oh, where, he was, where he was a chosen child, too. But he was one of the few who survived. Yeah, and it basically makes his mutation with the virus mm-hmm. the way that it is. Most people who get um, uh, some kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, introduction to the virus mm-hmm. um, mutate wildly, really. Um, even um, Alexia turns into a kind of gray-skinned, later dragonfly thing. But even even like on a on a base level, mm-hmm. most of the tyrants are just dudes who were injected with the virus, and then they turned into like they had a different reaction from turning into a zombie, but they've turned into this other kind of hulking creature instead. Whereas Wesker is injected with the virus via um, a tyrant's stab into his stomach um, into in Resident Evil One. Um, and instead of either dying or just turning into like a zombie or even turning into a different kind of mutation, 
he is able to kind of recoup those powers and almost make them his own. No other monster or creature um, in Resident Evil is capable of like this kind of sentient thought that he has and also like literal cat-like reflexes. And that is due to similar um, similar things being experimented on him as a child. Um, He... um, is uh, supposed to be a clone. Yes. Um, which is um, a spoiler alert, true for certain other characters in this in this game in particular. Yeah, I always forget about all of that stuff. I, I guess I've only played the games where that comes up like once. So I always think like, shoot, like Wesker feels like kind of an arbitrary guy to have become super powered in the events of Resident Evil 1. You would think that... And a lot of stuff happens in Expanded Universe, too, because they realize, like, oh, we actually have some gold here. Let's actually get a writer to do some stuff. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's 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 really interesting the way the T-Virus takes to him. And yeah. he's still in this kind of quest for even more power. So he starts chasing more viruses and ends up on Rockford Island. Which actually brings me to our second... Um, noteworthy development is Alfred's true nature, um, which is again fascinating to me because I mean my major is psychology. Mm-hmm. Goodness gracious! So in this game, we learn later on that Alfred has actually been cross-dressing and mimicking his sister Alexia throughout the game. We are under the assumption that Alexia is awake and well, but throughout the game, you do fight Alfred on many different occasions, and at one point, you actually see, I believe, his wig fall off, and you realize it's him, and he's starting to kind of lose whatever mind he has left, really. Yeah, the bit with Alfred kind of bums me out a little bit. Um, it's 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 a real mixed bag here, mm-hmm. um, because on the one hand, um, this feels like kind of a double twist, mm-hmm. which I like. It, it feels like initially you're led to believe that, you know, there, there's a sinister fellow named Alfred, and then he also has a sinister sister named Alexia. And then, oh, wait, the twist is that it's Psycho. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's Alfred Hitchcock's mm-hmm, right. Psycho. He is masquerading as his sister. There's actually only the one of them. Mm-hmm. And then there's a further twist that, no, there actually is an Alexia, mm-hmm. and that uh, Alexia is, in fact, the true villain, and that Alfred is just this kind of, like... Mm-hmm middle middle manager (laughs) i like that i think that's that's a pretty slick transition Mm -hmm. i will say the part about this that bums me out is and and like of course it would it's a piece of media from 2000 Mm -hmm. but there's some like it's very hard not to read some kind of like low-key transphobia into what's going on with alfred there actually is a part in the game where uh, Claire and uh, Steve are on the uh, airplane, the cargo plane. Mm-hmm. Um, Alfred shows up as being the one who is taking control of the plane and sending them to the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And Claire, in my opinion, very uncharacteristically calls Alfred a cross-dressing freak. Yes. Yeah, that's a really ugly moment in this game. It's a uh... ext- extremely ugly and, like... I forgot about it until I replayed it, and I was like, oh no, Claire, you're not that person. Don't do that. When you get into Alfred's... Well, first of all, when you get into the line readings of Peter Oldring, who is the voice actor for um, Alfred, Mm -hmm. it it almost feels like Alfred is meant to be something of a joke. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. 
there's this beautifully high tonation to um, Alfred's voice Mm -hmm. that I think really prepares us for the fact that, oh, of course he can sound like his sister. Mm -hmm. And also just kind of gives us a little bit of levity in the, in the situation. Yeah. Um, you know, he and Claire, when they first meet, have this very, um, kind of contentious yet funny, uh, back and forth going on. Um, and you know, you, you get the idea that like, maybe he's got some like psych issues going on. Yeah, he he's at minimum a quirky guy. I was about to say, like, is it just me? But right. I also feel like they might be playing on the whole like the the homosexual villain, but he's like right. But I think in the same way that it, that would be kind of something we see as the, a negative in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Right. It's almost empowering now. Mm-hmm. Dude, I love that shit. He's like a beautiful villain, and he's clearly very vain. Um, he likes the power and authority that he has, but he's, like, yeah. queer about it. And I think that that's kind of beautiful about Alfred. It didn't seem to me like Alfred was coded as gay, though. I thought the game was very heavily implying an incestuous relationship between him and his sister, which is kind of at odds with a memo you find at the end where she speaks of Alfred with nothing but, like, derision and condescension. I think there's multiple readings for Alfred, which I think is why he's... Um, such a actually good character, mm-hmm. um, despite you know the kind of negative, the, well, the very negative things that come of an incestuous relationship. Um, the fact that he can also be read as queer on another side mm-hmm. is actually pretty cool, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, it, he's he's clearly unafraid to be like this version of himself, but is more afraid of it when he is supposed to be the all-powerful Alexia. I, I think the complexes of the villain and the way that he can be read are um, more more interesting than most people might let on. And again, the fact that he can be read as somewhat queer-coded is actually um, maybe, maybe a, a small plus. <laughs> yeah, I can see that, for sure. Yeah, fair enough. Moving on to the third noteworthy development of this game. I put the Ashford family in general. There's always been a little bit mm-hmm. of breadcrumbs as to like what's actually happening with the Ashford family, but honestly, this game kind of puts forth <laughs> just how kind of nut slash how eugenic these people really are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and these are the folks who who run the island, of course. Exactly. Like we go into the fact that um, Alexia and Alfred are actually clones of Alexander. Yep. Alexander is the son of the co-founder of Umbrella, um, mm-hmm. Edward Ashford. Now, his children were supposed to be similar beings, quote-unquote, to Veronica Ashford, the founder of the Ashford family, who was supposed to be renowned for her beauty, intellect, and genetic superiority. Mm-hmm. Now, whether we know she was this way or not, we'll never know. They didn't know her. But that's, again, the eugenics part. They see that as superior. So anything you can create that mimics that as close as possible has got to be superior. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, what would you call it? Like, uh, it's, it's venerating the myth of the past, not the reality of the past. Exactly. Yeah. And Alexia was venerated herself because she was so unbelievably intelligent. As a young child, she surpassed the intelligence of a grown adult. She was like, oh, she's the closest to Veronica. 
the best of the best. Well, Alfred was actually left behind, and that's actually what created his inferiority complex, might have created his need to be like Alexia. Again, the beauty of his character, you can kind of create his past as you want, as you feel. I, I think the most important thing to note is that while he is um, the son of Alexander and, and um, Alexei as well, um, they are more like adopted um, uh, uh, children. Oh, how's that? Um, because the the uh, genes that they took for the cloning was actually from a kind of mummified version of Veronica. Oh, yeah. Um, and they use her genes um, in this experiment to clone and create the twins. So, really, they are birthed basically from their great-great-grandmother rather than from uh, Alexander himself. Right. Alexander, I guess, I, I don't know if he ever married. It doesn't seem like he yeah, it's did. Not clear. Yeah, he's, he's perceived of as kind of like a schlub almost. Like he's yeah. this yeah. disappointment. There's a really cool puzzle in the game. One of my favorites tied into yeah. the Ashford family. It's the classic RE1 press the button beneath the paintings in order puzzle. Mm -hmm. Except the way you determine the order is based on reading sort of like a short form biography on the different generations of the Ashford family and using clues in that text to identify which generation the portrait is of. That's right. a really great puzzle. I'm happy you brought that up because that, that forces you to fill in some gaps. Like the, mm -hmm. the text does not tell you the order of paintings to click. You kind of have to figure like, Oh, you know, the, the family, like the, um, the jewelry got diminished over time or like that sort of thing. Um, and it also ties in better with the story than most Resident Evil puzzles do because it plants in your mind an understanding of who each of these generations of the Ashfords are and why Alexia and Alfred are doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So interestingly enough, getting to the success slash failure slash eugenics of the um, Ashford family, let's get into the T. Veronica virus itself as our fourth mm -hmm. important development. The T-Veronica virus is interesting in the sense that it's the first recorded virus where the user has complete control of their mind. Mm -hmm. And I know we just covered Wesker, but Wesker does need drugs to stay in control of his mind. This is an important point. The T-Veronica virus, if you give yourself 15 years, as far as I understand from any... Again, listeners, if you know, actually, oh, especially tell me. I'm very interested to read it. But I don't know of another virus where, as long as you incubate for 15 years, nothing can take away your sanity. You will have it, and you can use the powers that are afforded to you without needing anything to help you out. Well, there is a memo from Alexia saying that the Nosferatu transformation was a result of how rapidly the T-Veronica virus takes yes. over. So, uh putting herself in cryo storage for 15 years is a way of slowing the virus's progression to the point that her immune system can develop along with it. Oh, to that's a good yeah. point. Okay. That's a good point. I was actually going to say, I don't think we have even enough research from umbrella themselves on the incubation of viruses. It seems like they, inject something with the virus and then they start to just check out how it's progressing and how and why and 
with what animals do you get which mutations and so on and so forth you gotta get that combat data yeah (laughs) combat data so the only side effect of the t veronica virus that we know of is involuntary mutations if harmed and as far as i understand alexia didn't actually mean to transform she was placed under um duress obviously from being attacked by claire and she had well she didn't have to but her body automatically transformed to adapt to the situation yeah i didn't find this very easy to follow in the game because like she's got those giant tentacles and stuff Mm -hmm. uh that are attacking i mean the she uses the giant tentacles before she's attacked after she comes out of cryo storage so i researched what the t veronica virus was and it's actually Mm -hmm. it's based on ants That makes sense. And the reason why it was based on ants is because Alexia actually thought, again, the whole eugenics thing is just the the obsession with the queen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, real top-down kind of uh, authoritarian approach. Exactly. So she kind of wanted to to emulate that with the T. Veronica virus. She's like, no, the queen is the highest. She commands things. It's like why she has an insectoid look to her, why she can command insects. She is the queen. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that the true purpose of this virus, apparently, was to create a true, honest-to-goodness leg- legacy to the Ashford name. Again, I know I've said eugenics like three or four times, but that's, that is, I gotta hammer it in. That's the point. That's the point. Yeah, they it's a key to theme. Create it's a key theme. Superiority. So they want to create something that could possibly mirror this fantasy that was Veronica Ashford. I, I feel very strongly that, again, no one knew who she was, but they heard she was great, and she started mm-hmm. the family, and she must be awesome, so anything closer to her must be fantastic, so they made this virus. Yeah, things must have been better back then. There's also kind of a, a family feud of power, right? So you mm-hmm. have the Spencer family, who helped uh, first discover the progenitor virus. Right. Um, and then you have the uh, Ashford family who helped create um, the Arclay Laboratories, the universities throughout um, Raccoon City, um, along with the Spencer family, of course. Um, but then there's like a shift in the power, right? right? So there's the Spencer Estate, the Spencer Foundation, so on and so forth in Raccoon City. But then the Ashfords, all they get is like the base in Antarctica and Rockford Island. Um, they don't really get to maintain the same kind of name recognition and the same kind of power that the Spencers get. Yeah. Um, specifically Oswell Spencer, who is um, the the kind of uh, head honcho. Yeah, we'll um, find out a lot more of, of him uh, later on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have all these varying degrees of doctors who also helped, you know, work on the progenitor virus, create the actual T virus. Um, who Spencer uses the great might of Umbrella to either kill or just kind of get rid of some some um, other way, mm-hmm. um, which is how which is how you get the events of Resident Evil Zero, um, and so it seems like Alexia and the Ashford family as a whole were trying to keep their what little power they had left and also kind of res resurp the throne i guess right yeah usurp the throne rather alexia is basically a doctor um she is basically a one of the uh few 
remaining uh, researchers that does that rivals Spencer um, or Birkin or anyone else in that in that uh, kind of family. Um, and in order to prove the might of the Ashford family, she uses it on herself even and is like, I'll I'll be the test subject. I'll show everyone how great the T. Veronica virus is, and um, and then I'll die. I guess yeah, that's what happens. Something, happened. I guess. Yeah, I'll um, <laughs> get exploded. It does. Uh, <laughs> it does kind of tie it back into the corporate intrigue of the earlier part of the Resident Evil series, and I think that's a testament yeah. to Sugimura's interest in maintaining uh, specific, like a worldview and and world building among these uh, yeah. these games, even when their themes differ. Are you listening, Spencer? Don't don't do this. Don't destroy the world. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness you said something because I was. Really I, I thought so. <laughs> I just wanted to say it now. <laughs> so on the fifth noteworthy development, we're going to go into the fate of Alexander Ashford, as well as the other imperfect T. Veronica specimens. We learn a little bit as to the ultimate fate of Alexander Ashford, the son of Edward Ashford. Mm-hmm. Um, we learned that Alfred was very jealous of his sister and also felt that he was kind of a failed byproduct of the cloning experiment, especially since Alexia was so intelligent. So to get revenge, he actually tricked his father, Alexander, by subjecting him to the T. Veronica virus. Mm-hmm. Um, Alexia, for honestly, probably shits and giggles but also to test the limits of the T. Veronica virus, went ahead with it yeah, and allowed the experiments to continue. So they both watched him degrade into the monstrous creature that we fight in the game called Nosferatu, the one that I uh, sufficiently complained about earlier. Yeah. There are, there's at least one other character we know of that was uh, injected with the T. Veronica virus. It may have been many more, it might have been the creatures on the island. I personally mm-hmm. did not find any confirmation that they were exposed specifically to the T. Veronica virus. I also no. don't see logically why they would. The T. Veronica virus is basically idolized. Like, they only yeah, really it... give it to those who they feel might produce superiority. It's a very different approach to virus development than what Umbrella has in North America. Yeah, Exactly, exactly. They, they give it to those... And the only reason they gave it to Steve, honestly, and by they, I mean um, uh, Alexia does. Once right. Alexia uh, wakes up and her brother uh, passes away, she gets revenge for him by seeking out Claire and Steve and ends up incapacitating them and uh, infects Steve with the two Veronica virus with really no other interest than just revenge yeah there's a bit of a an a and b scenario where just like well did she actually expect results but from what i read she knew what kind of was going to happen it's just more like well it's just interesting to see them suffer yeah she's got much larger plans at that point than continuing to do experiments like at that point she's kind of on a a world domination kick yeah you know experimenting Mm -hmm. with steve is not a high priority she submitted to her her base instinct she's just like whatever this will be a good way to kill off chris or not chris sorry uh claire um however he is killed by a tentacle from alexa surprise surprise Mm -hmm. and becomes the last known victim from what I understand, uh, of the T. Veronica virus. 
That's true, yeah, and uh, his body gets hauled away by Wesker at the end, so Wesker can continue the experimentation. Exactly. of Resident Evil Code Veronica. I had a real roller coaster with this game, but I think I ended up kind of hating it, honestly. Yeah. Uh, it puts on a good first impression. I I still really like that classic Resident Evil uh, gameplay. It has not gotten old. At first, I was a little off-put by the visuals, but they grew on me. I think this is actually a pretty good-looking game. And a lot of the lore behind the Ashford family and a lot of that, you know, that gothic horror kind of imagery really works for me. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of surface level stuff on this that I liked, but there are very specific points and core gameplay concepts in this that are so extremely frustrating that it makes it not worth it, I don't think. Yeah. I don't know if I, um, I hinted this before. Code, Code Veronica, now for listeners who have been following us for a while, um, they might remember we did Legend of Zelda for our first season. Mm-hmm. I played, we played Majora's Mask for it, and I said this is the best novel I've ever played. Yeah. In the sense where I, I love, 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 love the story. But I didn't quite love the gameplay. For various reasons. I, I heavily suggest people check out our, uh, our podcast on it, by the way. I think it's one of the more, one of our most interesting ones. It was. Yeah, I was really proud of our work on that. Yeah. Put a lot of effort into it. Um, but for this game, I'm going to echo that. I love Code Veronica for its story. Mm-hmm. Might sound weird, but I love its story, its expanded universe. I love the character interactions i love where the character interactions could have been i feel like they had an absolute masterpiece that they didn't really uh evolve as much as they could have but i enjoyed reading about it but the game itself is like meh i died way too many times and again not saying i'm the best game player could be just me but i died a lot (laughs) There are times where I was caught so unawares with uh, ammo. The freaking Nosferatu fight. I know people... I mean, I did beat him, obviously, but it gave me so much trouble. Yeah. That frustrated me. And the game itself was just... Just meh. It was meh. For me, personally. Uh, Chris, what were your thoughts on this game? Bad news. I'm pretty much in the same camp as you guys. This was uh, this was definitely the weakest of the Resident Evils we've played so far. I enjoyed the second half much more than the first, just because of the ammo conservation issue. Uh, I avoided collecting much ammunition in the first half, so I was consistently underpowered. So when I got to the second half and got the opportunity to actually engage in combat with more of the monsters, it was more fun. 
I didn't really enjoy the minute to minute overall. Uh, I got caught up in many more kind of instant death instances in this than I had in earlier Resident Evil games. I think the boss fights could be a bit punitive, even though uh, they were mechanically engaging at times. I think the pacing of this is a bit off. Like, this is much longer than previous Resident Evil games, and I don't think that works to its advantage. I think that the way that uh, Kato conceptualized the zapping system working is really brilliant in principle, but I think the way that it works in execution, basically going through two areas and then going through the same two areas again, just lacks some of the punch of the cool maze-like areas of the earlier Resident Evil games or the sprawling streets and like Baroque city architecture of Resident Evil 3. Uh, Code Veronica just doesn't quite have the same variety or complexity of environments. So uh, overall, I would not recommend it. I think the story is pretty cool, but not cool enough to justify its length. And at that, the way that the story is told is pretty rough. Uh, I don't like many of the characters in it, and uh, I think while it functions as a pretty cool transition point to later stories in the series, I think it's also where the story starts to get a little off the rails. How about you, Kami Jace? What do you think about Code Veronica? I'm sorry to say that you're all wrong. <laughs> all of you are wrong. This is why we have you here. Uh-huh. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Actually, so I will say that I will concede a few points. Um, while I think the game is rather long for um, the story, you are right there. Um, if you pay really close attention, like the first, I want to say, 30 to 40 minutes of the game is mostly cutscenes, introducing the characters, getting to know Steve and uh, Alfred um, Wesker to an extent. Um, and then from then on, there's like very little cutscenes and it's all gameplay and puzzles. Um, and then suddenly it's cutscenes again, the tyrant, and then back to gameplay and puzzles. Um, so it, the the kind of leapfrog it plays between cutscenes and gameplay can get a little annoying um, because I I don't really I guess I don't really know how other Resident Evil stack up but I think in at least Resident Evil one you can go through the first twenty to thirty minutes maybe even forty to fifty or an hour and it's like a very short cutscene and then tons of gameplay and then another short one and then tons of gameplay um, so. There's my one kind of gripe with it. However, I think the despite the kind of <laughs> lines that they give some of the characters, um, I think that the characters as a whole are very interesting and compelling. Claire is the best character. This is truly like the last time you see her for a while. So like I think you really want to play as her. Because um, you're not going to see her again until um, a kind of... Sp a different spinoff game that isn't as good, honestly. Yeah, that's true. I did give kind of short shrift to Claire. She's she's pretty great in this. Uh, Claire's always yes. a joy to have around. Mm -hmm. And to to that same effect, um, there's something about kind of not great games that are still very good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think that's why I kind of revisit it every couple of years, every Christmas. 
um, because it's one of those games that are intrinsically, as you say, not the best controls, maybe not the most um, uh, uh, compelling story, but there's something there that is charming that you pick up on through the couple of hours that you're playing it. Um, and uh, the I think the payoff, despite the final boss being kind of meh, um, the payoff is still pretty good. Yeah. Um, it's that it's the linchpin in the story. It's the without Code Veronica four and five, as we said, kind of weird. Um, so I think it's worth playing. I think it, you have to experience it at least once. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you decide you don't like it, then like watch someone else play it at least. <laughs> um, give it a try. Give it a go. And when you say that you love it, just remember Kami Jace told you so. <laughs> I mean, you heard it here, folks. You gotta do it now. That's all we have for Resident Evil Code Veronica. We hope you've enjoyed listening and encourage you to come back next time for the Resident Evil remake. In the interim, consider backing us at patreon.com slash franchise festival, where you'll get access to a bonus episode each month and even have the chance to vote on future episode topics. If you have any suggestions, you can also drop us a line on Twitter using the handle at franchise underscore fest or email us at franchisefestival at gmail.com. Where can listeners find you, Kami Jace? Yes, of course. So uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kami Jace Gaming. That's K-A-M-I-J-A-C-E. And the word gaming, all one word. Um, it's hard to spell my own moniker, so I'm, I apologize. <laughs> um, you can also find the Weekly Cooldown, my podcast, on its own uh, Twitter page at WK Cooldown. Um, you can listen to the weekly cooldown anywhere you can find podcasts, including wherever you're listening to this one yeah. or at WKCooldown.com. Yeah, subscribe and listen, folks. It's a great show. Do it. As ever, we've been your hosts, Chris. Spencer. I'm Hamilton. And special guest. Kami Jace. Thanks for listening, folks. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>